This episode of The Trial Brief was recorded and produced hours before the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And it cannot be overstated that we have lost one of the mightiest champions of justice in our lifetimes. Justice Ginsburg was a fierce advocate for equality for all Americans. And every single one of us has benefited from her time on the bench. Her eloquent dissents represent our democracy at its best. Passionate, brilliant, thoughtful debate with an eye on future generations. And I had the great honor to meet her on the day that I was sworn in before the Supreme Court about four years ago. And it's one of those memories that I'll treasure and I'll never forget. I'll never forget her kindness. I'll never forget how she told us, the delegation from New York, that she felt at home with us. Each and every one of us must honor her legacy by fighting for equality and justice as courageously as she did. And I'll leave you with one of my favorite quotes from Justice Ginsburg, and that is, fight for the things that you care about, but do it in a way that will lead others to join you. The Trial Brief with your host, David Otto. Today, I am so grateful and I'm humbled to have one of the most prolific scholars in the country here with me on The Trial Brief, Professor Michael Olivas, the leading voice in this country on immigration issues. His scholarship itself is even the subject of a book. Professor Olivas, PhD from The Ohio State University, his law degree from Georgetown. I think he recently retired in May. After almost 40 years at the University of Houston Law School, he is a William B. Bates Distinguished Chair of Law. The awards that he's won in academia and in his professional career are really too numerous to list here, but he was the president of the Association of American Law Schools, and he has received their highest award. He's the co-founder of the Hispanic Bar Association of Houston. But the reason I'm, I'm really, really excited to have him here is that he wrote a book, and it's called Perchance to Dream, A Legal and Political History of the Dream Act and DACA. And Professor Olivas uh, wears many hats. He's a scholar, he's a teacher, a professor of law. He's an advocate, he's a civil rights leader, he's a historian. But what impresses me the most, I think, is that he hosts a radio show on NPR called The Law of Rock and Roll, as he is the rock and roll professor. Professor Olivas, welcome to The Trial Brief. Thank you very much, David. I'm very honored to be here. I've listened to some of your shows, and I think that they're just wonderful, and I'm just pleased to be in that tradition. Uh, thanks. First of all, I want to thank you for writing this book, and it's amazing in its scope. What I mean by that is it's not a, you know, a heavy book, you know, it's not war and peace, but it's a deep dive into immigration and these very important, you know, issues with respect to the Dream Act and DACA. I, I think we have to start with just the basic history of the Dream Act and DACA and, and where we are. Believe it or not, after all this time, DACA resulted in two Supreme Court cases. One of them is largely forgotten because it was a 4-4 tie after Justice Scalia died and his replacement hadn't been named. And that case 
in essence, was about the constitutionality, although it was sent back to the Fifth Circuit, and then it was held because uh, DACA went forward, and then the Trump administration came in and tried to rescind this 2012 program that President uh, Obama had set in place. And I called them the gang that can't shoot straight. They they ended up losing, not because they didn't have the authority to rescind this program, but they couldn't even shut down a program. Of course, they couldn't start one, but they couldn't end one either properly. And so um, about two months ago, and we're now in September, so about two months ago, in fact, on, on a Thursday, the, the court decided after my book came out on the Sunday before, so I just barely beat it into existence. What did the Supreme Court decide, and what was their rationale? In that decision, Justice Roberts writes for the majority in a 5-4 decision that said the program had not been shut down properly, that he certainly had the authority to do so, but these 800,000 students had relied, to the, turns out, to their detriment on the existence of the program, and no good reason was given for shutting it down. If you want to shut something down that has its own life, and has its own uh, constituency, and affects 800,000 people who are very vulnerable, in fact, they're removable if this program didn't exist, you have to do it properly. You have to give notice and comment, you have to give people a chance to speak about it, and you have to take some time. And they just simply shut it down. Uh, they didn't allow new applicants for almost four years, and at the end of the day, they were ordered to do so, and they still haven't done so. They've defied doing so. In fact, the acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security has been found not to have been properly appointed because he wasn't confirmed by Congress, by the Senate. And so they've simply doubled down. They've said, well, we're not going to let any new ones come in, even though they've been ordered to do so. And we're going to, instead of it being renew- renewable for two years, it's going to be renewable for one, which means it will double the cost and the the chance of, of these students slipping through and so forth. What did the DACA program do exactly? Well, what the program did, in essence, was to give three benefits that really do matter. They don't matter to Americans because we, we, we're born with these. But these are kids who, after Plyler versus Doe, the 1982 decision that allowed undocumented students to not only stay in school, but be, they were required to be in school because of truancy laws, and they couldn't be charged tuition. And I wrote about that in an earlier book. But in that particular case, 1982, these kids began to achieve in school in numbers that were just phenomenal. There hadn't been many before that time because of the uncertainty of their status in school. But by my count, almost 35 court cases have been engaged to determine whether or not these students had in-state tuition eligibility. That is, whether or not they could go to school. Now, let's say in your instance, they could go to uh, you know SUNY Oneida with in-state tuition. And the difference between in-state and out-of-state tuition is always substantial. And so there's a whole series of these cases well before Plyler that went back many years. And for the most part, they won these cases. There are a bunch of lawyers who went around state to state suing and defending these programs. And my own personal satisfaction came when in 2001, when the DREAM Act was introduced by at the federal level by uh, Senator Kennedy and Senator Orrin Hatch, sort of the yin and the yang of, of Congress. I took bets that the, that Dream Act would become a law because if two people as disparate in their views had uh, agreed upon it and introduced it, it would pass. And of course, to this day, it hasn't. I've lost that bet several times and had to pay off an awful lot of nacho dinners, we just say, as, as a result of that <laughs> miscalculation. But because it wasn't going well at the federal level, and you might ask, well, if there's 
if there's litigation at the state level, if higher education is a state responsibility, why would you need a DREAM Act? Why is that? Well, in large part because these kids are ineligible for any federal assistance, financial aid, whether it's a Pell Grant or a student loan or work study. They're ineligible for those. And even with DACA, they're ineligible. When we're talking about DREAMers and, and the kids who are affected by the, that proposed DREAM Act, who are they? Well, they're children whose parents brought them to the country illegally. That is, the, the parents crossed the border or came here legally and then absconded. And as a result, children that they had brought with them uh, were out of status. They had no legal permission to be in the United States. And these days, there's, there's virtually no pathway from being undocumented, that is, without having the legal documentation to remain in the United States and become a permanent resident. There's almost no way out, especially if you're from some of these heavily impacted countries such as Mexico, where there's 20,000 per country limitations. And so, you know, there's as many people coming from Slovenia with permission as there are from Mexico. And so you, you end up with these kids who've lived in the United States since they were children, literally since they were children. And their younger brothers and sisters might be U.S. citizens because they were born in the United States and therefore had birthright citizenship. But there's no way for them to change their status, which means that they can't vote. They can't get driver's licenses in many instances. They can't work, most of all. And in some instances, even with Plyler, they were having trouble. Every year, I have to send letters to school districts reminding them they can't ask citizenship questions of parents or condition the children's eligibility for band upon whether or not they're U.S. citizens. They just can't do that after Plyler. So Plyler is probably the high watermark. But if you flash forward, that resulted in a lot of these kids going to school and doing quite well. It appears that these kids have excelled and still excel in school, and they excel academically, despite extreme obstacles. The year I moved to Houston, there were 16 salutatorians and valedictorians, that is, first in their class or second in their class, in the Houston School District, the fourth largest in the country at the time, who were undocumented. And these are remarkable kids. And when you think about the shadow that they live in, you know, they all speak English, they all serve as translators for their parents. They live in the shadows if their parents ever are found out or have innocent encounters with police or are caught up in accidents, even ones they didn't cause. They can they can be found out. And if they're U.S. citizens, they, they have permission to stay in the United States unless they're under the age of 18. And so every year, thousands, tens of thousands, in fact, of, of U.S. citizen children are deported with their parents. What was President Obama's role in this? And President Obama to his credit, had begun to try and set the stage for the DREAM Act and for comprehensive immigration reform, which would reach the parents. And one of the things about Plyler was that although the children were considered innocent, it ended up demonizing the parents. The, the, the narrative became, the parents may have sinned, but we don't visit the sins of uh, parents on their children. And so innocent children uh, are allowed to stay. So there was some sympathy, and and it's a narrative that you can fall into fairly easily. But the point is that uh, in, in 2012, he decided on to, to employ prosecutorial discretion and to, to give very little priority to deporting them. In fact, he said, as a group, you may stay in the United States as long as you are eligible for this program, which meant you, you were eligible for college. You had to arrive at a certain time. You had to be of a certain age. You could not have any felonies. You couldn't even have serious misdemeanors. And you received three things in exchange. You received social security number, which meant uh, you could put money into social security and have ID. You had permission to work, what's called employment authorization. You had permission to do that, which they didn't have before, which is the most important for many of these kids. 
and you also had what's called lawful presence. A lawful presence is a step below lawful status. Lawful status means you have legal permission in the United States. Lawful presence means that we stop your, your deportation calendar. We will not deport you. The burden of proof is upon us to remove you. But if you do this and stay in good stead and make satisfactory progress in school and keep your nose clean, you can continue to renew it every other year. But lawful presence is different from lawful status. It is. As I say, it's, it's, it's inferior to it, but it still is not nothing. That is, believe it or not, there are about a dozen states that say in order to practice law, you have to have a graduate degree, pass a bar, have moral character and fitness, and lawful presence. There are another 10 states that say have a social security number because those are proxy measures that we use for occupational licensing. Another one would be that you have permission to work in the United States. That would normally screen out somebody who's unauthorized. If you're undocumented, you don't have permission. But when you documented kids, had this special classification that worked. And it, it had been used before. In fact, the, most, the, the leading case, believe it or not, the very first one is John Lennon. John Lennon had married Yoko Ono and had permission in the United States. And it turned out he had a, a hashish hit on his record and his wife wanted to live in the United States to find out where the daughter was, her daughter from the previous marriage, and her ex-husband had absconded with the child. And so he ended up eventually having a court case in, in Houston, of all places. But uh, John Lennon sued with uh, a request that his record simply be suspended, that they used a discretion, that he would not do anything else to cause himself to be deported, uh, as long as he was looking for his stepdaughter. And that went all the way to the circuit court, and they held that this provision had always been there because every administration has a different understanding of intolerance for dissent of one sort or another. By the way, there was a, a very interesting uh, case on that called U.S. versus Lennon, which is a great documentary if you ever want to pull it up on late night TV. So that was the first example of that. And of course, every administration uses it. You hear even uh, Attorney General Barr saying today, well, if I want to pursue a case, I've got the discretion to do so. If I don't want to pursue a case, I've got the discretion not to do so there. So he used that. That is, President Obama used that. And then he went a step too far. He ordered a program called DAPA, which would have resurrected uh, uh, an amnesty of sorts for parents who had citizen children, which is a, a, a separate case because those kids are not dreamers. It's, their parents are undocumented. And it turned out that that case went to the U.S. Supreme Court and it was tied 4-4 uh, because of, of uh, Justice Scalia's death. So I went back to the Fifth Circuit. In the meantime, President Trump was elected and, and chose to rescind it. And so after three years or so of wrangling and, and court cases and so forth, uh, Supreme Court holds in a 5-4 decision that, uh, that the documented students win because the Trump administration had not closed it down properly. So where does DACA stand now? Since that time, it's simply been frozen. The the administration has not done anything for it. They're, I think they're they're like the old University of North Carolina basketball teams who would run up a score and then play four corners defense where they would just pass the ball to each other because there was no shot clock at the time. Right. Shot clock was implemented because of North Carolina playing the four corners defense. And people would, you know, the game would probably be 11 to four or something like that. So it's not real basketball. But speeding it up, well, there, there's no there's no way to, to speed up this, um, especially when the acting secretary turns out to be unauthorized. Ironically, in an agency that's talking about work authorization, he was never vetted by Congress or approved. And so uh, the inspector general's report said that he has no authority there. And 
uh, that's working its way through as well. And I think that what they do, the Trump administration is doing is, that I think that the immigration people at least are acting as if they've lost already. And so they're going to simply unravel everything they can from amnesty to, to DACA to uh, anything else, comprehensive immigration reform to asylum, where we're constantly violating laws, to separating children, to uh, in fact having forced sterilization with some of these poor women, these immigrant women. And uh, it, it is going to take years to undo the damage that's been done there. But DACA is the immediate victim because uh, the program uh, is a shell of itself, even though it's robust and it was successful, it paid for itself by my count. And I followed these better than anybody, uh, more closely, certainly. There were only about a dozen students who became ineligible. I mean, that's, that's almost impossible. They're trying to track down hundreds of thousands of people who got, you know, paid uh, illegally with, with federal money for for the pandemic, <laughs> and, and there's, there's wholesale fraud going on. That never occurred with these kids. If they were found to have materially misrepresented themselves, or if they failed classes, or if they got involved in you know a drunken fraternity party where they were convicted of public drunkenness, they would have been out. These parts that just didn't happen, and so we're we're sort of at the worst case now because these kids won the case, and the, uh, the advocates are having to go back to court to order the administration to do what it was ordered to do by the Supreme Court in a lawful decision uh, two months ago. So even when you win, you got to go back in. So DACA kids are on holding right now, and it's difficult to know exactly how to advise them. While this sounds like a loss, the success stories and the contributions that these kids have made and continue to make is nothing short of extraordinary. Uh, tens of thousands of them have now taken their licensed position in society. They teach. They 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 are doctors. Uh, in fact, we some people uh, submitted a brief during the pendency of the of the DACA case, the second one, and uh, counted over twenty thousand DACA students who were involved in, as essential workers in healthcare, medical doctors, diagnosticians, as nurses, uh, as public health people, and that program has been a success as we knew it would because these kids always leaned into the wind. They had terrible headwinds against them. But despite all the headwinds, all the failures that could have been, all the hardships and the, and the inability even to work uh, while going to school and get paid and pay your way or get financial aid, they did it anyway. And these are the kinds of kids you want. You know, it's one thing to be born in the United States and have that gift. It's another to come here as children when your parents sacrificed for you and you've had to live in the shadows all these years your parents had to live humiliating, dangerous, and despairing jobs. And yet you come here with the immigrant striving, and you achieve because they came here for you. And I think these kids are wonderful. And every day that I worked on this book, which took me 10 years, because it, it just was a long slog, I, I was cheered by knowing that these kids could transform our society. They're the best we have to offer. And it would be nonsense, craziness to send them back to countries they aren't even familiar with. These kids speak English. They're excellent students. They are, in every way, constituents in our community. And they intermarry. They serve us. They make sure we're healthy. They educate our children. This is what you want from an immigrant group. And it's been a success, even though it's always had the sort of damocles hanging over it. Yeah. What I love about the book is that you you do start at the beginning and you you lay the the groundwork and the, and the predicate and you you get to the Dream Act in two thousand one and 
you know, the Dream Act, again, in, in its simple form, would basically give give these uh, temporary workers a path to citizenship. Yeah. Right. And you see in the book how you get a senator like Orrin Hatch on one side. <laughs> all right. Dick Durbin on the other. Like you couldn't get two more diametrically opposed <laughs> right. people. Right. So you right. you have to be sitting there saying to yourself, this is a gimme. Okay, I mean, we th- this is this is done. And it, David, I lost bets on this. I lost dinner bets on these. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> especially but, in two thousand eight. <laughs> well, I wonder if if never got voted on in the Senate was on your uh, Dream Act bingo card because it, I, I don't think it ever took a vote in the Senate, did it? No, no, they they actually did. But what happened was it failed by four votes, uh, and it failed for reasons that each of which is just breathtaking. Senator uh, Specter later became a Democrat, said, well, I'm for this, but if we pass it, then we'll never get comprehensive immigration reform, which is something President Bush had said as well. And so I can't, I can't vote for it, which, you know, I <laughs> think about the logic of that for a moment. Uh, Senator uh, McCain, who'd been for it and had introduced, co-sponsored it several times, uh, was running for, for his uh, party's presidency. So he couldn't appear to be too good on immigration reform. Senator Boxer from California had fires in the state. Well, what's new there? How's that going? And so she went home and missed it. Uh, Senator Kennedy, of all things, the lion of the of the liberal side, had a brain tumor. As you know, he died uh, not long after, about two years afterwards, never recovered from it. And uh, it just died. And there were two or three others that, you know, coulda, woulda, shoulda. And it just broke my heart. And I really thought we had it, especially... Because I didn't think McCain would 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 vote against it, but and he was very courageous, as you know, when 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 he wasn't running for office. <laughs> yeah. So uh, each you know uh, he used to say uh, there used to be this great story uh, about how how every I forget the name of the TV show was it was set in New York and it was the Naked City and in the Naked City there are a million stories uh, heartbreak and success and failure. So tonight they have a story about failure for the most part, but. And then the, the naked city, the naked city has has a million stories, and it's hard to to uh, sometimes guess how, which way people are going to vote. Uh, and that's as close as they came. They've never had the Senate pass it, and the House has passed it several times, including recently, still waiting. Um, and President Trump says he'll he'll you know, he says, "Oh, I want I love I love uh, Dreamers," and and then of course he he signals to the Republicans that he doesn't want it. And, and so they've not taken it up. Shame on them, just like so many other things. And so uh, it's died a warning. And this, this notion that if you got the DREAM Act passed, it would hurt comprehensive immigration reform, misunderstands both the DREAM Act and comprehensive reform. Because I think that if these kids, these are the easy hanging, low hanging fruit. These kids, nobody could vote against. In fact, almost all polls show 70 and 80% of people in the United States uh, are in support of dreamers. And, you know, there a lot of people have who are citizens have dreamers as neighbors and, and their kids go to school together and their kids fall in love and they study together and they eat together and they cut each other's lawns. And I think that having them as on the pathway to citizenship would do two things. One, it would signal that good people could disagree on the terms, but that essentially... Uh, it's to our advantage to keep these kids here, not repatriate them to Peru or wherever their families came from. They're no longer Peruvians. So that, that's number one. But number two, once they 
got citizenship, they could bring other family members here. And that's what I think is vexing people. But I think that if I were to to advise President Biden uh, about this, I'd say before comprehensive immigration reform, which is going to require some study and some compromise, let's do the easy one. Let's get these dreamers through and get them settled and let them get licensed and continue their families and continue to be productive members of society. And that would be an extremely popular bill, in my view. And I think it would set, once it it worked out, and everybody saw what a success it was, first it would take almost a million of these kids off the table because they would have the pathway, and then eventually work out comprehensive immigration reform, which is going to be harder. It's a lot easier when you don't have a nativist who runs on the principle that he doesn't like Mexicans running the show. So I think that that minds and hearts have to be changed, and the dreamers are the vehicle to do that, in my view. We've been very lucky to have them. We don't want to have invested in them and then let them go back to some country they don't even know any longer, where they don't know the language. Make it a high bar. Say that they, you know, they can't have felonies. Uh, you know, uh, uh, they may have to pay some fees for this. It's usually a fee-driven kind of thing. But let's do it the same way we did in 1986. Everybody agrees that Immigration Reform and Control Act was a good thing. It regularized the status of millions of people. And we just can't continue to have a, a, a subsection, a shadow population, where they will make bad choices because they're trying to be furtive and not be found and not hidden. And they pass that on to their children, even when they're citizen children. That's like the worst of all worlds. And instead of seeing this as the opportunity that it is, to see it as a detriment, in my view, just completely... Uh, you must not have been a dreamer if you believe that. You meet these kids, and they will just seduce you, and their works are outstanding, and they're very patriotic. In many ways, like, like so many other naturalized citizens, they're they're more uh, American than people who are born here who just take it for granted, like you and I do. You know, we'll fast forward a little bit from the uh, DREAM Act to, to DACA. And, you know, you, basically, I guess... It, you know, this deferred action for childhood arrivals is a kind of administrative relief from deportation, right? I mean, it's in a way. So what are the requirements for DACA or what were they? Because it's been frozen, but what were the requirements for those kids? Well, they they had to have arrived in the United States at a certain time. There were some people that were too young and some people who were too old. They had to have clean records. They had to be satisfactorily making progress in college. They had to pay uh, a fee. They had to give biometrics, and they had to not make any material misrepresentations. And so uh, once you had that, you were able to do it and renew it for two years. And and that worked quite well. It funded itself. The the fees went toward doing that. As I said, there were virtually no students who were ever dismissed from the program for failure to thrive, failure to to, uh, meet the rules. And they presented no problems. They, they, did not, they were not in trouble. They, when they left the United States, they had permission to return. They did so. They, didn't, they, they hewed to the rules, in large part because they knew they were being watched, because they knew this was a one-time chance. In, in my view, a DREAM Act would simply sweep all of them in and would, again, you'd have to do some line drawing. Someone who's been here X number of years, someone who has no record, et cetera. But that, so the, the dream, DACA in some respects was very much like the run up to, to the dream act and legalization, because if you just gave these kids permission after doing this, let's say, if you stay in this status for three or four years, pick a number, four years, 
discussed actually, then you're eligible to become a permanent resident, which which allows you to stay and to work and, and so forth. And then eventually, after five years, you can you can apply for citizenship. So it would fit into the regular track that we have for people, like someone who comes here to marry someone or someone who comes here to, to work and then to become a, a permanent resident and then to become a citizen. Uh, that's what you would do. So you would overlay this on the existing system. And I don't. I think it would take care of itself because these kids are so resourceful. It's not like you know you're going to have to waive language requirements for them because they're so old, or um, you know, it's not like they're going to have problems with dual citizenship because they won't. They won't. They're ineligible for the most part from from their own country. Uh, so I think that it would serve as a trial run for comprehensive immigration reform. That's why I think that that. You know, uh, the, the senators and the president who, who said this would be an impediment toward comprehensive immigration reform were holding out the impossible and using it to thwart the possible. And it ought to be the reverse. You take it in small steps. You take it first with these kids who everybody agrees are good. And, and you can't say that they violated the law because they simply came with their parents. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th- I think you touched on it a little earlier that these children are innocent that sort of leads to someone has to be guilty and, and it sort of falls on the yeah. parents. We've demonized them. And that's what DAPA did when president Obama, when it was a, I called it a bridge too far at the time, I said, this is going to bring it down. And sure enough, it's what got us into the Supreme court the first time. And that was DAPA was struck down. So uh, I do think that DAPA in fact probably exceeded president Obama's authority because he was giving a new legal status to people. And only Congress can do that. But, I, I get the idea of why he was doing that, and he thought, well, this is so successful, I'm going to try and get the parents in now, you know, because these kids can transfer no benefits to anyone else, because they're here temporarily as well. What we need is to be able to have these kids be here permanently on the pathway to citizenship with whatever strict requirements you want to have, all of which they will exceed uh, easily. And then, once they are permanent residents, they can apply for their parents if they're over the age of 21. And it will also uh, bring in all these people who were too old at the time, because every piece of, of, of law, every statute uh, has a cutoff point where you're in and, and you're out. And uh, we need to, to go back and, and harvest those people who missed the opportunity at DACA because they were simply too old or too young. And, of course, we got four years of pent-up uh, applications right now because they, they weren't letting any new ones in. And even now that they've been ordered to do so, they have been thwarting the Supreme Court in the uh, federal court that, that now has the remand on this and is is overseeing it. And, and I think they're trying to run out the clock. They figure if, if they win, then they can do whatever they want. And if they lose, then uh, it's going to be someone else's problem. And they will have dismantled DACA essentially uh, now. It will be like the, the old uh, Confederate War Widows Fund where you know, every day someone dies and, and, and the number shrinks. And that's what's going to happen to DACA is that these right. 800,000 kids will, will shrink. They aren't going away. What are they going to do? There are lawyers now. There are doctors. I, I don't want my dermatologist who, who's documented, who has permission. Uh, I don't want the sort of Damocles to hurt her. I <laughs> want her to be able to help everybody. Sure. Um, and they've done that. And so, David, th- this is a model program that paid for itself. It was well-run. that had no mistakes. Um, and it was put together very quickly, mind you. In less than six months, they, they cobbled it together, and they never had a problem with it. It's because they wanted it to achieve, and they saw it as a signature piece. 
And it breaks my heart now that the signature piece was not only dragged through the courts, but then won the case now to see it dissipate and and dissolve like a like a farm where you don't tend to the fences and and so all the animals run out and that that's what's happening here is that this DACA is dying the slow death in a department headed by an assistant an acting secretary that doesn't even have the authority to be there immigration is too important to leave to the clown cars sure sure I mean these are lives uh, and and I you know when I'm reading the book it it almost feels like you start out writing the book and you're writing it with a happy end, you know, a real positive ending <laughs> at the end, right? You, you got this positive I'm ending in mind, and you're, and you're working your way, you're working your way to it. And then all of a sudden you just sort of say, it's almost as if you just go, well, I know this is where the, ha- where, where it's supposed to end really well. Uh, I'm busted, David. You're too good a reader. I started out thinking this was a birth announcement, and I am so happy to tell the world about these little kids who are going to be so successful. And then at the end of 10 years, uh, and I took two years out to be a college president, and I went back because I wanted to finish the book. And, and, and so I, and now all of a sudden I realize I'm, I'm presiding over a, a funeral, a dirge, a slow dirge, a slow strangulation. And, and then we win the case, so I'm back. The case was, was, as I said, was announced the Thursday after the Sunday I published the book. So you have to cut it off at some point. But I thought we were going to, we, we had won this case, sure enough. And so I've gone from from euphoria to despair, back to euphoria, and now to despair again. And I just have to think, honestly, I just have to think that this is too important a resource. We will not further away. Yeah, we're going to go drill in some places where we shouldn't be. And yeah, we're going to, you know, let go uh, some stuff that can go into water. And I mean, those, those are all dreadful things. And partisans are, are uh, and advocates are on all sides of that. But for this issue where I make my living, these kids have kept their part of the bargain. And we as adults can't give them the encouragement and the opportunity and then take it away from them without explanation, especially when they've got all the way to the Supreme Court and won. You know, if, if I'd lost this case by four, then I'd, I'd say, okay, fair enough. I still think um, the Supreme Court should have gone a different way because there should have been someone to, you know, President Obama's not a, should have got a hearing, you know. Uh, but, uh, okay, I'll curse the darkness on that. But we won. Even, <laughs> even after two, two conservatives were put on the court, we still win the case. And, and now we're losing it. We're losing it in the trenches. Because there's just so many dreadful things going on, including in immigration, that every day, you know, you just sort of set a new bar for something that's gone awry. And and the rule of law has to matter. And it did matter, by the way. Administrative Procedure Act, this administration has had 30-plus cases where they've lost on administrative procedure ground. I mean, this is something taught, you remember in law school, you taught this the first year. And they all act as if it doesn't matter. They could, Because they're God, they could just pronounced from on high and that's just not the way it works in our in our society it's certainly not the way it works in our courtrooms and they've been slapped back for it and the census example Mm -hmm. and DACA are the two lead examples I can think of where they clearly lose and then they still try and sabotage it right and that's that, that's not covered in the book, but boy, it'll be covered in my next book. <laughs> <laughs> what are, you know, there's, there's with immigration, with dreamers, there's 
a lot of myths out there, or I, I shouldn't say myths, I should say misinformation, because we live in, in a time of just yeah. misinformation. Right. What are the biggest pieces of misinformation or, or myths that you that you hear? Well, I, it, when you have 70% support, you're at the top of your game. So I, I don't hear much misinformation about them. These are not people who've been trolled, because with 800,000 of them, they're their own best um, advertisements. You know, every day you come into contact with a successful one who's an elected official, who's your doctor, uh, etc., and they become uh, advertisements for their own success. I don't hear any trolling of them. Uh, I think even the president, uh, President Trump, has indicated this because he even he can't find something. But he, he did turn around one time and say, "Well, you know, they weren't they aren't all angels." Well. I mean, that, that's an interesting point for him to make of all people. But, well, of course not. But we weren't certifying angels. We were certifying, I think, by the way, there's a disproportionate number of them who are angels because they lead blessed lives. They were given this opportunity, a very small one. They made the most of it, and they understand that their success and their family's survival depends upon them doing well. You know, like wearing masks. You wear masks not because you think you're going to catch anything, because you don't want to give it to someone else. And that's sort of the way here. These kids are civic-minded. Uh, they are active. You know, they've had street marches. So they've organized. And I used to say to them, you know, don't whatever you do, don't go sit in a in a uh, senator's office. They did that, you know, one time with with, uh, with McCain, Senator McCain. I can't defend you if you do that. You'll be deported. And one time I was on a meeting with some dreamers on a phone call, and they said, one guy got frustrated. He said, well, Professor, that you may be right, but you're just an old birthright citizen. <laughs> I said, oh, God. <laughs> and there was this sharp intake of breath from the other 10 dreamers. And they all said, well, you know, Professor Lears is our friend. He's defended us. You know, he's spent his whole life working for And he said, yeah, but, but he, he's just not listening. And I, I said, Listen, nobody listens to you guys better than I do. I listen to you every day. I listen to you when you're right and when you're wrong. And you're just wrong that you do not have the same First Amendment rights as citizens do. Because it's, it's one thing if you're Martin Luther King and you go to Birmingham jail and you write the letters from Birmingham jail. But he was beaten in jail, but he was not deported. If you guys do this, you'll be deported. And I tried to say this in a way that didn't scare them, but what was truthful. I mean, as a, as a lawyer, I, I had to tell truth, you know, to power. And, and these kids, and, and, and he ended up sending at the end of the day, he sent me an apology. He said, I was just mad. It wasn't you. I know you're in our favor. And I, you're the first call I'm going to make if I ever get arrested. <laughs> <laughs> these kids thrive despite all the adversity, despite all the odds against them. They do it without financial aid. They do it without parents who can fill out financial aid forms. They do it with parents who are uneducated for the most part who can't help them. You know, clearly you're going to help your kids go to college and if they want to become professionals, you're going to help them with that financially and and you're going to have alumni connections to them. And you're going to put them in the best schools you can and make sure that instead of taking shops that they take calculus. Or you're going to do all the kinds of things that educated people do. These kids don't even have that advantage. Yeah. What they have is parents who love them so much that they risked their entire family and family structure to come here. And we have given them this small opportunity and they took it and they thrived 
and they kept their part of the bargain and we haven't kept ours. And then they go to the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, and they win and prevail, and they still aren't able to apply for this program. That's wrong. That's not the way our country should be treating our own people, much less immigrants who come here and who abide by the rules. Yeah, and and your admiration for these kids and, and your passion about this comes across loud and clear in this book. Those kids are very, very fortunate to have someone like you for all these years uh, be an advocate. I am. Well, it's very nice of you to say so. And I'm I'm really looking forward to that next book with the with the ending that we all want. So <laughs> let's. Uh, well, when the, I'll book I'll book on your on your show that day. Okay. That's David? a deal. That's a deal. We'll be back. And I'll make okay. sure, um, I'll make sure that I, um, attach the link to your, um, to your Twitter and your, you. and your rock and roll show, because I, I can't wait to, uh, <laughs> to, to be involved with that. So I, I can't thank you enough really for joining me and, and thank you for writing the book. And, and again, I urge everybody, if you, e- even if you just have a, a fleeting interest in this subject, this book puts it all together. From, from start to, to right where we are today. It's an important book, and I, I know that you're going to be better for it. Again, it's Perchance to Dream, A Legal and Political History of the Dream Act and DACA. Professor uh, Olivas, thank you so much, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much. I hope sometime I'll be in New York when this all clears up. And we'll have an opportunity to... Uh to meet face-to-face. Until then, I'll meet you on the radio. That would be an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. On behalf of David, once again, thank you for listening to this episode. Please take a moment to subscribe and give us a rating at Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time on The Trial Brief.